Hello, and welcome to the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Today's guest, my God, needs absolutely no introduction, but Ryan Serhan, thank you so much for joining us and being a part of the show today. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again. Absolutely. Listen, it's you, you have basically in 12 years built a global brand. I mean, that is basically unheard of. I'm gonna, we're going to start dissecting all of this, but I want to start by like, take me back to the beginning. You were raised in Massachusetts, right? I was, uh, I was born in Texas, but yeah. I, I grew up in Massachusetts uh, outside Boston. Nice. Um, but I bounced around a lot when I was a little kid. Uh, moved like eight times before I hit fourth grade. What? Uh, always, yeah, always making new friends is very, it was tough. Um, and then we settled down when I hit fifth grade and then I switched schools three times uh, and then settled down for high school. And, uh, and that's where I realized, you know what, maybe my thing is theater. Um, that was like the one thing I liked. Um, and then we went to, and then I went to college in upstate New York. And then yeah. came to New York City to try theater professionally, you know, just like uh, I'd rather regret the things I did than the things I never tried. There you I go. But wait a minute. But you've, you've tried a lot and you've succeeded a lot with a lot of things. But wait, why did you move so much? Um, my parents uh, for work, my parents yeah. for work, my parents were in finance and Got it. different jobs and bouncing around all over the place. It wasn't like a military kid or anything. Yeah. Uh, and my dad also was like one of those people who really didn't like neighbors. And so if like someone built a house too close to us, he would literally just move. Um, so like the house that I finally grew up in in Topsfield on Hill Street, if anyone's listening to this from, from the North Shore of Boston, 120 Hill Street in Topsfield, um, uh, famous for the Topsfield Fair. We like, it was this neighborhood yeah. That was like house after house after house. And then all of a sudden there was this massive stone wall and there were, uh, and then 60 acres of nothing. And then our house was like right in the middle. So we were protected from neighbors. <laughs> and so to like see any friends, we'd have to like- They have like a little moat and alligators too? Like what no, the- No, but our driveway was a mile long. It was the worst. Come on. And, and my parents are the types of people too, which again, I regret, I, I resented it so much when I was a little kid, but like, you know, our, our jobs were shovel the driveway when it snows in Boston, right? It was, hey, do pick up the weeds, pick up sticks, uh, do the yard work, everything. I mean, it was just nonstop manual, like outdoor chores, labor, painting, things like that, uh, which was just the worst. But I, I, I think about those days a lot, you know, um, ever since I graduated college, because it's what pushes me to work so hard now. Yeah. So I never have to pick up another stick or pull any more weeds for the rest of my life. <laughs> so actually, I read somewhere that your father really sort of instilled in you that entrepreneurial spirit. Was that because you had a mile of driveway to start shoveling in the winter in Boston? Yeah, he instilled in me... Um, uh, a, a, a real understanding of work, right? Mm. What it means to actually work, which is different from going to work or yeah. doing a job, right? yeah. but really what it means to, to work and what a real work ethic is that can produce results, 
versus just being busy. Um, and so, you know, when he had a, an aesthetic eye and he would like, you know, he'd be very tough on us. And if the yard wasn't mowed the right way, it was out of pure laziness on our part. And yeah. he made us write, I had to write a 10 page single space essay when I was 10 years old about the importance of not being lazy. Um, it was the worst, hardest thing I've ever, not ever, but like when I was 10, the hardest yeah. thing I ever had, it was just like, I can't even imagine doing that to my kids now. If I had a 10 year old now, could I with a straight face tell them, you didn't hang up your coat where you're supposed to, now go write me an essay? Like, would they even do it? I like, it's, I don't even know. Different times back then in the, the Absolutely, early- Absolutely, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah, that he, um, uh, that's, that's what he instilled. And it was a, a relentless work ethic that was, you know, you'll quit when you're dead type thing. Yeah. You know, and um, so, you know, I don't know. Um, uh, I think it was a different era, right? Yeah. I mean, my dad is, yeah, he's born in the 50s and, yeah. um, you know, his, his mom died when he was really young. His older brother died when he was young. He had to like basically raise his own family. He had his first kid when he was 18. Wow. Um, uh, you know, he uh, has a really, really interesting story. Incredibly, incredibly smart, very strict, no time for bullshit. Yeah. Um, and yeah. The most honest person I've ever met to this day, uh, to a fault, um, and sometimes it's probably better not to be honest. Sometimes it's better just maybe not to say anything. Uh, and he doesn't know how to do that. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, it takes a lot and so he's not for everybody. Um, but like, you know, growing up too, like you knew around him, if you were doing a good job because he would tell you and you knew he wasn't lying and you knew when you were doing a bad job because he would tell you and you knew he wasn't lying. Um, and it, that also helped me a lot for, for kind of work now and where I am now and with other people, right? I think honesty in that level uh, is far easier at the end of the day than the alternative. It's the sense of integrity that is lacking in our industry a lot at times. And when you actually have that inherent in you, it does make it, I, it makes you stand out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's what you have built. All right, but before we get into all of that, so you came to New York and you started with your acting and, and, and modeling and you landed a soap opera. And yep. that was what, in 2006 or something, right? The so-, so I moved to New York City in 2006. The soap uh, happened in 2007. Okay. Um, and that took me right to the beginning of 2008. And uh, I played Dr. Evan Walsh the Fourth on As the World Turns, <laughs> which was really, really great up until the writer's strike, which, yeah. I, which at this point was you know 13 years ago. But um, that really killed the majority of the soaps and uh, killed a lot of scripted production because a soap opera gets written, they write a full hour and a half episode every day. Right. Uh, and if you have no writers, then you have no episodes. And if you have no episodes, then people won't turn in and then they turn on to other things. Um, and so I got onto that. I thought that was like my big break. It's going to, you know, it was huge. It was insane. You know, they would like deliver scripts to me the night before at like restaurants I was at. It was like, it was super, super cool. Um, and then they killed me. Oh. Killed me. 
Uh, I got that script. It was, it was exactly as if you had imagined it. Like everything was fine, totally normal. And then one day it's like, my grandmother kills me um, <laughs> on the rooftop. Literally, that was it. Your grandmother killed you? Well, we were wrestling uh, with a syringe that I, that I apparently had been using to kill everybody else um, awesome. because they were firing a lot of actors because they were trying to back <laughs> on costs. And so someone, so they have to die. Um, and so I just kept killing them. I was, I killed Dusty Donovan. I killed all these people. Um, and then my grandmother found out and tried to stop me and I pulled out a syringe and we wrestled and apparently my grandmother is just a beast. Uh, apparently she could wrestle you to the ground. Wrestled, wrestled the syringe right into my heart and I died. That's so believable. That's amazing. You yeah. know, it probably happens to a lot of people. Yeah. And then I, uh, uh, and then very shortly thereafter, I kind of ran out of money. Um, in the meantime, to also pay bills, I was hand modeling. I held phones for AT&T for a while uh, and held like Nespresso capsules and all the random stuff that you see photos of people's hands doing. Right. Uh, so I did that. That actually paid way better than the soap, by the way. Did it? Uh, yes. <laughs> the soap, like after tax and all that stuff was like, you know, you'd work a whole day and you get 500 bucks the hand modeling was $150 an hour. Well, look uh, at that. Yeah, it was great. It was like way better. And I didn't really have to do anything other than like massage my metatarsals. <laughs> like my fingers wouldn't cramp up. Um, and then I ran out of money. And then it was the summer of 2008. And it was move home to Steamboat Springs, Colorado, where my parents were at the time. Because uh, they'd moved out of Boston when I went to college. Right. Uh, uh, and, you know, they, they bought a ranch. And they lived on a ranch. And it was like... I could move that space and it had no neighbors. Yeah. hundred percent. I could uh, live on the ranch, work on the ranch, paint fence for the rest of my life or figure things out. Or I could get a survival job and stay in New York and figure it out. Right. And it was, and the survival job became, it was, well, it was either wait tables, right. Bartend. I took a bartending class. That was, that sucked. Um, it was uh, get temp work. My girlfriend at the time was like a temp receptionist in a bunch of places. And so a lot of yeah. actors and you know people were doing temp work. Or what a friend told me to do is, listen, you do this acting thing, right? Real estate is the same. All you have to do is, is put on this character of a professional, memorize information about buildings and streets and stuff. Like you don't even have to have experience, just memorize. When you memorize information, people will believe you. Uh, put ads on Craigslist and rent people apartments rent rent one apartment a month and you get the other 29 to 30 days a month to do whatever you want do your hand modeling do your whatever i was like okay because bartending and waiting tables were set hours sure and i had tons of actor friends at the time who like were missing auditions and had to get time requested off of work and it, it was like their survival job became their job and then yeah. acting became a hobby and that was the last thing i wanted to do so i said screw it i got my real estate license um, and I started renting apartments, you know, posting ads on Craigslist for apartments that didn't exist, meeting people on the corner by Starbucks on 49th and Madison. I'd have my, my, my pockets loaded with keys and I would take people around and just, you know, show them things. And if they rented something for $3,000 a month, right? I was a brand new agent. So my split with the house was 50, yeah. 50 and commission was typically one month's rent. And so $3,000, 50, 50, it's 1500 bucks in my pocket. Right. If I could rent something bigger, I'd make even more money. Yeah. Uh, and that, that was it. My, my rent was $1,100 a month. Um, at the time I lived at 38 West 31st street in Koreatown. And, 
uh, my food was not that expensive. I ate like the same food every day. And it's not like I was like buying bottles at the club. Like right, I, didn't, right. I didn't have that many other expenses. Uh, and that was my goal. Like make my expense budget. Everything else is gravy and buys me time. And I just became, honestly, I, I just kind of became addicted to the work, you know, cause trying to be an actor in New York city, you spend a lot of time waiting. You get a, sure. you spend a lot of time being rejected. Right? You spend a lot of time spending money, acting classes, acting coaches, right? Like networking events, just trying to get seen. You spend a lot of time. Like I would stand in actors equity audition lines in Times Square from 6 a.m. until 4 p.m. to not be seen. Oh my uh, gosh. Uh, you know, but it, because it's it's union rules that yeah. if you are a union show, you have to open up your roles to everybody. And but most of the times they're just casting their friends anyway. Um, uh, but you got to do it. You got to stand in those lines, do the best you can. Uh, and so then real estate rejection was not nearly as bad and it was never personal. It was never about my face. It was never about my voice. It wasn't about the color of my hair. It was, we don't want to live in New York anymore. Or it was, we took another place or we had already been working with someone else. So we're, we're moving forward. And so even though that was annoying and would suck, I was able to weather the rejection a lot faster than I think, I think a lot of other people um, because I'd already had that thick skin built up from, you know, being told I was too tall to this, yeah. that, right? So you went back to your work ethic that you got as a child when you were looking at the real estate, if you start thinking about that, right? Because it was the idea that here's something you could control, right? You couldn't control the acting. You were waiting for them to call you. But here was something where you could actually be proactive and control the outcome of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, well, I mean, as best you possibly can, right? Sure. There's a lot in this business that I can't control. Right. Um, most things, especially other agents, but <laughs> I, I can control the work I put into it, right? Like it's when I there's two quotes that really have kind of governed my my life. When I moved to New York, it was. What I said earlier, I'd rather regret the things I did than the things I never tried. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know what? I can move home. I can play it safe. I could take the LSAT. I could go to law school. I could just go get a regular job, see what happens. Or dude, if I don't try this, I will regret it for the rest of my life. Or I'll wake up when I'm 57 or 72 right. and I'll be like, wow, I do only have one life to live. Why didn't I ever even just try? Um, and I never want to, I never, ever, ever want to feel that way. Um, and then, and two, once I got into real estate was, okay, so I'm an entrepreneur now, I guess. I work for myself now, sort of. I don't have any product. I just run around and try to connect people through real estate. And if they like it, they pay me a percentage of the purchase price or of the rental amount for the year. This is weird. Uh, sure, I'll do that job. Um, uh, but there's so much you can't control. You can't control what the buyer's feelings are, the emotions, the job market. At that time, it was 2008, right? Yeah, My first day in the business was the day Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy. That's so um, uh, my first couple of years, I just thought everyone gets fired all the time. Like right. jobs are just, they're few and far between. No one has any money. No one can get a loan, right? Yeah. What are you, crazy? I didn't know what it was like before. I just thought everything was impossible. Um, uh, and that second quote is, if you take care of the work, the work will take care of you, hmm. which, which really, really helped me because some people are so focused on the clients or they're so focused on the deals, or they're so focused on the money that they lose focus. And if you put your focus on the work, 
then you can totally control the work. That's right. All day, every day. And by default, deals will happen. Clients will materialize and you will make money. And then the smarter you work, the more you work, the more that will happen. And then you'll look back and say, wow, I had no control over any of these people, but I had control over the work and I had the best year I've ever had. Yeah. We know how that happens. Yeah. So take me through how you went from the rentals to getting into, let's say, your first million dollar sale. So what was I, that transition? Yeah. Well, my first sale came through my my rental clients, honestly. Of course, sure, right. Uh, you know, and that's that's the advice I give to anyone starting off is listen, don't go after big whales. You have no experience. Why would anyone ever hire you? Go right. after that other people don't want go after what's closable and so for me when i started like no one wants to do a two thousand dollar a month six floor walk-up rental like that sucks but if you have zero dollars and you have no experience guess what you get to do that and people will trust you with it because that's also an apartment like maybe you would live in right like you would live in that with your roommate split it a thousand bucks a month each, right? That's, that's, that's you. And so you can talk to clients from a point of reference that way. Um, and, but some of my first deals came, came from renters and from posting ads on back in the day, you used to post ads on Craigslist because that's where everyone went. Like, sure. Zillow. I mean, if there was, maybe there was Zillow, I don't remember, but definitely not in New York city. So if you wanted to find an apartment in New York, you went to Craigslist or you went to the New York times. That's right. uh, and so Craigslist was free. And you could post any photo of anything ever. And so I would just find cool listings and I'd put them up on Craigslist. They get buried in the feed really quick, but then people would call. And um, uh, I started working with buyers in parts of Queens, like Long Island City and Astoria. And so that was an easier market for me because the price points were lower. And what I found was that buyers in that part of New York, once they made the decision to be there, then they weren't really looking elsewhere. Right. There are so many places they could buy versus Manhattan. Like if I got a client who wanted to buy in Manhattan, you know, they want the Upper East Side on Tuesday. They want the Upper West Side on Thursday. By Saturday, they'd want to be downtown. Next weekend, they want to be in Brooklyn. The next weekend yeah. after that, they'd be fired and lose their job. Um, yeah. because we were in the middle of the Great Recession. Uh, people who wanted to be in Long Island City um, just were far more stable for some reason. And so that's where I really cut my teeth on how to sell. Uh, and so I'd get buyers that way. And then one of those buyers turned into one of my first listings ever at three Hanover square apartment 10 L for $399,000 that I had to personally paint obviously. Um, and we sold that for 369 and that turned into a listing at Sterling Plaza, 250 East 49th street. They turned into a deal at 635 West 42nd street on the 21st floor. Um, and I mean, I can tell you every deal ever. But that no, can't. I mean, a real, I was just going to call you like the rain man of real estate. How do you remember all these things? How's that even possible? In New York City, every deal is traumatizing. Well, that's true. All that's true. As if I was being beaten by like a bamboo whip. Um, all <laughs> like the apartment numbers, the clients' names. I remember the fire in their eyes. <laughs> like they're just, I don't know. They just, they, they take that part of your brain because they're all, they're super tough. Very, very all traumatic. Deal, you know? That's uh, crazy. But I also used to do, the way I really got into, let's say like the luxury market in New York, yeah. which is, which at the time was 5 million plus, but now it's probably 10 million plus. Sure. Um, uh, uh, was kind of, again, what I said before was um, I went after the listings other people didn't want. 
So like, why would I try to go pitch a seller that's meeting with 12 other brokers, 11 of whom are way better, way more experienced and, you know, uh, uh, have better resumes than I do. I, that, I mean, I, I could do it maybe good for, for, and I did, um, good for experience, but a total crapshoot and one that I would probably lose most of the time, which I did, or I could go for the sellers. No one wanted because they were really difficult or yeah. the properties were impossible or they were just too expensive. But for me, like if you have no listings and no business, then you don't really care. Right. Right. I just wanted to plant flags. So, yeah. okay. So if I go on any other agent's websites, um, and I see just tons of big money listings. I don't know if they're real or not, or if this sure. person is good or bad, but it seems like they have listings and number of listings equates to legitimacy. And the more inventory you control, the more market share you can control, the better you can control your income. And so I started going after expireds um, uh, that are, that were just notorious for being terrible. And right. one of them was 45 West 67th Street, apartment 15 ABC, which was this smorgasbord of an apartment that was totally cut up and smashed together, really tough. The building was wrapped in scaffolding. It had like eight foot ceilings, really, really hard. And the sellers, uh, uh, you know, it was probably like a four or $5 million apartment and the sellers wanted $10 million. Wow. And they're like, and you know, they believe they're from Florida. They didn't really understand the New York market really tough people. Yeah. Uh, really tough. Um, slightly bipolar. Um, and they had gone through like six brokers. And so, you know, I reached out to them and said, listen, um, uh, I believe in your pricing. This is what I can do better than anybody else. Also I'm 26 and, uh, I will die for your apartment give me a shot. Give me one month. I know the standard is 180 days. Just give me a month. Let me see what I can do. And at that point, they had exhausted all their other options. So, well, so they were like, okay, fine, sure. Um, but I did get them actually to agree to adjust the price to 8.5, which was still a solid like three and a half million overpriced yeah. in 2009 uh, and 2010, which is, you know, no, it yeah, um, uh, which was, you know, not a time that you want to overprice anything. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, and we ended up, I ended up selling that apartment. Um, to an overseas buyer who found me on the internet. Wow. Uh, that deal took one year to close. It took years and years and years off my life. <laughs> it taught me everything that I need to know about how to deal with sellers, how to deal with buyers, how to ward off potential litigation. Sure. Close. I mean, it was like, it was, it was boot camp. The school uh, of hard knocks. That's crazy. The worst. That deal. Well, I will tell my grandkids about it. Um, <laughs> Uh, now I know why you remember every address. Exactly. And then from there, I did a couple more deals in Long Island City and a developer out of the blue reached out to our office and was like, uh, no one else is selling in our building in Long Island City. Who, who are you people? What is, what is this name of your firm that makes the bird's nest? What? Um, and uh, do you guys want to come help us sell out the rest of the building? And wow. at that time, I was like, meh. I don't want to be, I don't want to like, cause it, to me, that felt like a temp job. It felt like, Oh, be in one building and just sell apartments. Yeah. One building That sucks. Um, and, and I, and I, I actually, I turned it down because it was in Long Island city and I didn't want to be the King of Queens. Um, and then that developer came back to us like a month later and just said, listen, we have another building in the financial district, 99 John street, 442 apartments. 
our sales team is not cutting it. Um, do you want to come in and, and sell the building for us? And so I went and interviewed for that one, got that one. Shortly thereafter, a million dollar listing started casting for auditions. I went to an open casting call with 3000 brokers. They asked me what I was working on. I said, I had a whole building. They're like, wow. Cause they were from LA. So they were like, yeah. they were like, wow, that's so New York. Whole yeah. building. And I was like, yep. Yes, I do. Like, how long you been in the business? And I was like, a long time. <laughs> um, uh, amongst other questions they asked me. And then the rest is history, man. Um, and you got cast. Yeah, like, you know, 10 months crazy. later. Yeah. Uh, that was a crazy process in and of itself. But then I used that show to open doors. The show didn't open any doors for me. No one called. No one wrote. No one gave a shit. Um, no one calls anyone they see on TV. But if I reach out to somebody and I mention it, all of a sudden now I have a hook that very few people have. And so I use that hook. And so you all day, what? all night, seven days a week. I, I have to tell you, you probably have done, I have a lot of friends that are on other reality shows and you know, it's like, it's the way that you have used your platform has been genius, Ryan. It's Thanks. been really genius because you knew what your strengths were and you knew what the power of the show was but to your point, you had to leverage it. So, you know, it, that was to me, what you've done is genius because you actually think about it. You it's, it's been, you've been in this, in this, you know, you, the show has been on what you've been on the show eight years. Yeah. We're filming if season nine comes out in two weeks, but we have, we've been filming it since 2000 filming since 2010, but it's been on the air since 2012. So okay. it's about nine years. So you figure in nine years, what you've actually done, is build a global brand. Mm. You know, that's extraordinary what those results were. I love to sort of like go through that trajectory, but there's so many lessons in that. Tell me how, so you started with what, a team, right? So once you were on the show, did you already have your team in place? No, no. no. You started your team whilst you were on the show. Yeah, I've always sort of, and this is what I talked to the, you know, now that I have my own company, it's what I talked yeah, to. Yeah, I know. We're going to get there. <laughs> it's crazy. Is, uh, 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 you know, for us, I like to set goalposts really far away yeah. and make them really, really hard. Um, yeah. And then what's amazing is once we get there, it seems too easy. So yeah. let's keep setting things really, really far away. Um, and we have to be our own tiger moms. Like we've got to be our own cheerleaders because no one else will care. Like no yeah. one else cares. Like yeah. if you tell something and you tell yourself, great job. <laughs> <laughs> but no one else knows. And I, you know, and you just look, I, and a book that really changed everything for me was the fall of advertising and the rise of PR. Mm. Uh, and uh, what that really taught me was that advertising is pushing your message onto people that they don't want, but if you push it hard enough over a long enough period of time, they'll just assume that that's the message. Whereas PR is pulling people into your message that they think that they do want now. And if you hit people with both, um, especially through PR, right, um, uh, you can create a brand that way, but you have to be your own promoter um, and success begets success. So anytime you do anything successful, um, you sell anything, right? Be humble, be kind, make it about the clients, but be a champion of your own success because people want to work with someone who's successful. Like, you know, um, uh, uh, and let people know that. 
And so from the very, very, very early on, like I, I, I embraced that. And I had to do the same thing when I was an actor. It was like talking about the roles I was in, the, yeah. the reviews, you know, the stuff. Like you, you are, you're self-congratulatory and it's weird at the beginning, but when you realize that, wait, that's just the job, then, it, then it's not weird, it's, it's the job. And so when the show started, I was by myself um, uh, and I quickly got myself like an unpaid assistant and an unpaid intern uh, because I, I needed help because I was selling a building downtown and then the show was like, okay, we'll do one episode about that building. Um, but you know, season one is, is 10 episodes. And so then you have nine more episodes that you have to sell something different in every single episode. So you right. gotta go sell nine other things, totally different. All your sellers have to agree to go on camera. They all have to be big money listings. Uh, and if you don't sell enough, we might fire you and cut you from the final edit. So we're gonna film the whole first season with four of you, may the best three win. Seriously. And there was, yes. And there was an agent season one um, who filmed the whole season with us and they cut that person at the end. Wow. I never did that. Wow. You think real estate is ruthless. <laughs> Just go to, go to Bravo, like go to, go to TV production, man. Uh, you know, there's a lot of pressure on us in that first season to, to go big or go home. And what yeah. I really learned was, okay, what, what really changed, right? I got nine listings. I figured it out. Um, yeah. I cold called. I met people on the street. I did everything, expired, fizzbos, you name it, anything. Um, uh, one of the listings I got, I read about in the New York Post, this guy being sued by his board. And I found out how to reach out that to that guy. And I reached out to that guy and I was like, hey, see being sued by your board. Want to put your apartment on TV? Uh, <laughs> want to really like, want to really screw them over? Let's do it. Uh, and that guy agreed. So like, it was... Uh, uh, you know, but, but then I had this business and I was building up this tiny little name for myself, but it's not like there was a secret sauce. It was just this ridiculous pressure yeah. of public embarrassment yeah. and pushed me to work even harder and to work smarter and to work for results. Uh, and that stuck with me for a long, long time. Um, and season two, same thing, season three, right? I just knew like, damn, okay. All right, they, they, they kept me on, I'm gonna stay here. I wanna do bigger things. I wanna do even better things. Um, and something else that, that someone had told me, um, Richard Rubenstein, who's a, a, a big, big, Rubenstein PR is one of like the biggest public yeah, relations firms sure. ever. And Richard Rubenstein told me when I first got cast on the show, he's like, here's the best piece of advice you're ever gonna get. Go big, go hard, and make sure you film the person you wanna be when the show comes out. Mm. I was like, what the fuck does that mean? Uh, and then I thought about it. And what he meant was, all right, so I'm going to film this show about the agent that I am today in 2010. Uh, but it's not going to come out till 2012 or something. Yeah. You know, hopefully I'm doing better business in two years, but it's not going to mean anything to me uh, because people are going to watch me as the agent I was two years ago. That's brilliant. That's myself into the future now i gotta do business on tv today that is indicative of the agent i want to be in the future so i gotta start being future me wow. now. i gotta carry myself with that level of confidence i gotta be able to go into those types of pitches i gotta put myself out there and if i'm successful at it people will believe that that's what i do yeah i know buildings boom All right put it on tv 
developers when I go to them, hey, well, I, you know, it's just on TV with this whole development. Oh, okay, okay, so you do that. Okay, yeah, 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 great. Okay, awesome, you know? <laughs> because success, you get success, right? If you Absolutely. And then you now sort of like came in and you had the platform and now you built the business because you had the team, right? And now the team turned into what is a, a, a brokerage now because now you've started your own brokerage. So there was a lot of layers there, right? So you started with your own success. You started with the brand that was Ryan and you were starting to film into the future version of yourself that people were starting to to buy into right and so now you have a real viable business now you've become not just yourself and your business but now you've got a team and now you've got a team in various cities around the globe really because you also were doing london right so you had teams around the globe so how did that all now create now you have to create a culture because now you have a company. Now it's not just Ryan selling real estate. Now it's the Surian team in various cities around the globe. How did you create that culture? Because when people and developers wanted to work with Ryan, they expected that any of the team members were representative of what you were already offering. Loaded question. Um, yeah, I listen, before we started the company, I knew early on that I couldn't do everything by myself. Yeah. And that I should only focus all day, every day on what I do best. Everything else, I should have other people. And I would see these people like trying to do 10 jobs at once, running around with their heads cut off like chickens. And they were so busy, 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 busy. And then all they did was complain, complain about the market, complain about their clients. They're always exhausted. And it was just, da, 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 da. I'm like, yeah, but you spent four hours writing an email. Like you spent six hours prepping on listing to go to market, like you, you, that's not what you're hired to do. You know, you are, and I am, uh, uh, focused solely on building brand and building business. Yep. All, like that is it. Even talking to you right now, like there are agents and people that will listen to this that are, that have never known me or heard of me before. And that's me building brand, right? I want people to know, and maybe they'll refer me deals or take our sales course or buy the books or watch me in our listing, you know, whatever. Um, uh, everything else can be done by other people. And so I started to figure out how to use people and in a good way um, and leverage them and multiply. So I could be in as many different places as I possibly could. So, you know, I can't be on the Upper East Side and Dumbo, Brooklyn at the same time. So I want to find a junior agent that can help me uptown. I want to find a junior agent that can help me over here. Now, by proxy, I'm a resident agent of two different neighborhoods. Right. And let's expand and let's just keep going. And then those agents would get too busy. And then I would have to bring on other people and find other people and bring them on and bring them on. And then I wanted to move faster. Um, and so I brought in my own operations people. And then I wanted to do design faster. So I brought in our own graphic designers. And then I didn't want to have to worry about Excel sheets on Saturdays when I was calculating commissions. And so we brought in an accounting firm for my own team. So we basically built a company within a company um, and you know, just started selling a lot. Uh, and then fast forward to uh, 2019 and made the decision of, you know what, again, 2006, I moved to New York City because I'd rather regret the things I did than the things I never tried. And I don't ever want to pass up an opportunity, and even if it's terrifying. So I should always do kind of what's terrifying. Um, otherwise, 
I'll forever be uncomfortable in complacency. And I'm not okay with just being okay. Right. So, um, uh, next year, 2020, it'll be my 12 year anniversary in this business. Um, I'm going to leave and I'm going to start my own firm and we're going to do things a bit differently, uh, uh, as best we possibly can. And so we started setting that up and then COVID hits and the world shuts down and everyone I have been talking to tells me not to do it. Pause, wait, hold tight. Every deal dies shit show. Um, the office we were going to lease falls apart. Like everything I'm in New Hampshire quarantine with an asthmatic mother-in-law and a baby, you know, like we thought freaking zombies were going to take over Manhattan. Like it was crazy times a year ago. Um, and then the next day I woke up, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I got into this business the day Lehman brothers filed for bankruptcy. And in hindsight, it was the best time ever to start, uh, low expectations. Right. And tough for everybody. So I don't want to start a brand new real estate firm in New York city when the market's hot and everyone expects you to let's do it now. Let's, let's make the biggest noise we can now because the last thing anyone in their right mind would do when a million people move out in New York city, there are tents in central park and bodies along the FDR is start a real estate brokerage company. Um, that's some big money energy right there, isn't it? Yeah, or just, like, just <laughs> your pure ignorance. Um, uh, and ignorance is bliss for a reason. Yeah. And so we did that and started it and started from scratch, man. We spent the summer creating the brand, creating the content, really taking the core you know, administrative team that I'd really built, expanding it, building it out, um, like through Zoom, <laughs> like through Zooms and through like masked cover of darkness, I rented us a townhouse in Tribeca, um, uh, uh, you know, um, that where we could where we could really prove our business model and build out that culture and show people what we were trying to do, um, and just to see if it worked. And we hit the little red button. Twelve years to the day that I got into the business, Wall Street wow. Journal profile piece about our new company on September fifteenth, twenty twenty. That was day one for us. And legally, we became licensed because we couldn't file a license uh, previously. Otherwise, someone else would find out about it and like write about it. So we did it on October 1st. Uh, that's when we finally became licensed that day. And so it's been you know almost seven months. That is an amazing story. Amazing story. You know, I want to sort of uh, ask you a little bit about your work-life balance, right? Because everyone has really seen your, your life play out on television and, you know, you marrying and uh, having and becoming a dad and doing all of that. And, you know, there's some really wonderfully emotional, vulnerable moments that you've had when, you know, you, you, you really felt the responsibility of everything that you were building, including your family. And it was really beautiful. I think that's where people really connect to, to you so well, Ryan, because you're, you're so human, right. And you're so relatable. And so tell me about sort of the, the responsibility of building that legacy for your family. What was sort of that life work balance that really, because everything that you do, you do large, right? And so you want to make sure that your family was taken care of, that you had the legacy in place, that you built this incredible brand. How do you balance all that? I don't really. <laughs> That's an awesome answer. You know, I, uh, uh, 
I just, I try to be as clear as possible with expectations um, because it's, it's lying and miscommunication that'll kill any relationship. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's expectations that aren't set. So people are like, dude, work-life balance. How do I do this? How do I do this? It's like, because you never actually sat down with your partner or your family and said, Hey, I love to work. I really want to build a business. Can you guys help me do that? I really want to do it. It'd make me really, really, really happy. You don't, you just wake up, you go to the office, you come home, you're tired. The kids are there, whatever you're stressed on the weekend. Like you don't ever have those conversations. Um, and so, you know, I made it really clear. So I, I have a, you know, net, so we have a baby now, she's two years old. And my deal um, uh, uh, is that I am home uh, two nights a week, Monday through Friday, before the baby goes to bed so I can see the baby, give her a bath, which is a total fiasco. Um, and then after that, I can go back to email and phone calls or go back out in an appointment if I have to. Yeah. And then if I'm in town, not traveling, then Saturdays are for the baby. Um, and then I try to do like a date night once or twice a month, which during COVID was hard to do. And, and that's, that, that works for now. Yeah. Um, like it. Definitely not perfect, but it's, it's, you know, regimented, which can suck. Um, but it, it's, it's what works and it, it's what gets it done. And everyone knows my focus is on the company. My focus is on work and that it'll stop at nothing to make sure that it is the greatest success in the history of the known universe. I love this. And so tell me what the greatest lesson you've learned in your career thus far has been. Um, so many, so many, man. Um, I, the greatest lesson that I've learned, um, I would say that I'm trying to think of like, what's the greatest, there's been so, so many lessons uh, that I've kind of talked about now um, uh, about, you know, just like, uh, uh, you know, living for the future, right, has probably been one of the biggest lessons that I've learned. Um, uh, and positioning yourself as the future person that you want to be so that you can live the absolute fullest life that you ever possibly could. And so that you don't leave anything on the table. Um, so that you don't ever regret anything, right? I think the show helped me understand that. I don't know if I ever would have really truly understood that if it weren't for that. Um, but it was also, um, you know, uh, you know, losing clients, right? Losing clients um, and then clients like dying, like you, you're in the real estate business and you, you witness a lot of shit, you know, oh, yeah. death, divorce, everything. Um, and you realize how short life is in 2020 really, really showed us that as well. Um, and so it's, you know, go for broke, live for the future. Uh, because once the day is over, it's done. It doesn't mean anything. Um, no, it's probably like the biggest lesson, um, that makes the most sense to talk about right now. <laughs> I love that. So I have one final question for you. So in your book of life, what is this chapter called? Ugh. Part two. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's like the second book. It's like Lord of the Rings. Like the second. <laughs> it's it's a trilogy. Yeah, I, well, yeah, basically, like part one was like the origin story, the craziness, the the real estate ring, 
right? The, yeah. the, up the damn mountain. And now we're in like part two, like flip the DVD over, you know, <laughs> who knows what's going to happen now. Um, people don't have DVDs anymore, but it's, uh, I don't know. I think that's, that's kind of what this part is for me. And so it was totally freaky last year. Like we I had a team of 65 agents that I, I, that I could not take with me. So we had to leave behind. Wow. Uh, it was really, really, really hard. Wow. Uh, so, uh, but it forced me to put my back up against a wall and say, okay, how do I not miss a beat? And how do I build again from scratch yep. during a time when like you wouldn't ever want to do this. Sure. Uh, and, and you become the most creative, the most adapted, the most flexible when your back is up against a wall. And I just, I know that I'm that type of person, you know, especially like financially, I put myself into financial um, uh, conundrums all the time, things that freak me out. And I know, I know myself, I will figure out a way. I will figure out a way somehow, some way that in hindsight, it's always gonna feel like, oh man, remember that was a big deal? Damn, you know? Um, uh, and I, I think they're just, I'm just that type of person that, that needs to be pushed um, a little bit. And I was the same way, like in theater school, right? The directors I had that just sort of let us do the lines and do the parts, like had no effect on me. I can't even remember who they are, but it was right. the one who would really, really, really push. They would push till they got the absolute best out of you, which is why probably one of my favorite movies ever is that movie Whiplash, right? Yeah. Um, with J.K. Simmons, like that, right? Like we, you know, you have greatness inside of you, but if someone isn't there to beat the shit out of you to get it out of you, then you might be leaving that greatness on the table. That's it, man. I love it. Ryan, thank you so much, my brother, for this interview, but also for everything that you do. You're, you inspire so many people. And it is so wonderful to see you living your dream and really what you have created reaching a culmination on such a global scale. It's such a pleasure just to sort of watch your journey. So thank you so much for sharing your time with me today. Of course. I mean, I, I just have to say, you know, nothing I've ever done has been by me by myself. Um, there is an incredible team of people around me um, who have helped, who have promoted, who have believed in what we've done. Um, and I really, 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 uh, uh, live and work for uh, the people that, that do this with me and stand alongside with me because um, they're just as crazy as me. <laughs> you need crazy. It attracts, right? Crazy attracts. Yeah. You know what? I should interview everyone that works with me and turn the camera on them. Um, do the whole series of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ryan, thank you so very much. I really enjoyed having you on the show, really enjoyed this conversation and just your candor. And it's just, uh, who knew how funny you were? This is good. Who knew? <laughs> thank you, Ryan. And thank you all of you for listening. This has been the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. <laughs>